Um, I want to take just a moment before uh, we dive into today's message just to say another word about Kairos. Um, there are some men here with Trinity who have been instrumental in that ministry for years, and I know some of you are in this space right now. Would you stand if you've been involved in Kairos ministry? Um, we're just so grateful for you all and your commitment to, thank you, yes, absolutely, and women as well, yes, I, yes. Uh, oh, what, in, in planning that for today, a, cu- a couple of things. One is that this is a ministry that um, has been making an impact for a long time. And some of these guys have been doing it for 30, 40 years. Um, and so one of the hopes is that some of you will be inspired to join them uh, and for more to come along and be a part of that, which is why they've got a table out there today so that you can connect and learn more about it. So um, I would just invite you to be listening, paying attention to if God might be calling you to be involved in this ministry that has so much uh, importance and, and potential uh, to do good with others. Um, the other thing is that it's a great tie-in to today on a couple of levels. Today is World Communion Sunday, and so this is a day when we sense our connectedness to our uh, siblings in the Christian faith around the world. Uh, The first Sunday in October, Christians all over the world are coming to the table or tables together. Um, and, uh, and so we give thanks for that and that expression that helps us lean into God's desire for us to be of one mind, one spirit, one body of believers. Uh, and also, uh, because today is the day when we are wrapping up our series of messages on what does the Bible say about uh, with the topic of racism And you heard what Marissa had to say earlier about how that disproportionately impacts um, persons of color when it comes to our prison systems. Um, So, uh, as we kind of keep hold all of that in mind, I want to now turn us to a passage of Scripture from Revelation that also holds those two themes of the day together, or all three, if you will, if you include Kairos as a theme of today as well. So listen to these words. You'll see them printed on the screen. This is from Revelation chapter 7. After this, I looked, and there was a great crowd that no one could number. They were from every nation, tribe, people, and language. They were standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They wore white robes and held palm branches in their hands, and they cried out with a loud voice, Victory belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels stood in a circle around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell face down before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and always. Amen. This is the word of God for the people of God, and God's people say, thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Come Holy Spirit, and breathe life into the words that I speak, that they might carry a word of life from you into our hearts 
and minds today. Amen. There was a great crowd, and they were from every nation, tribe, people, language. It's a beautiful vision cast for us, isn't it? That image of everybody being included in this final image of the kingdom having come to its full fruition. It is a beautiful vision to hold on to. And as we worship today on World Communion Sunday and as we worship here in this particular place, we know, don't we, that we are not there yet. There is still work to be done. And so today we dive into this final topic in our series of what does the Bible say about racism because that is one of the areas where there is work to be done and even work to be done as we look at Scripture. And so we begin today with some truth-telling because it's important to tell the truth. And the truth is that there is a questionable history in our not-so-distant past, especially in our own country, of how the Bible has been interpreted and how it has been misused to prop up relationships, a distorted nature of relationships between races in the world. And so it's important that we deal with these past interpretations and acknowledge the impact, the legacy of harm and devastation that they have caused. One of the resources I have read in anticipation for today is a book by Esau McCauley entitled Reading While Black, an African-American interpretation of Scripture as an exercise in hope. And in that book, he offers a question that is a good starting point for us. And the question is, put simply, is the Bible a friend or foe in the black quest for justice? Now, I'm going to move us toward answering this with the positive and saying it's a friend, but what we have to be honest about at the outset is that in times past, it has been used as a foe, and sometimes even in the present, in certain contexts, is used as a foe. And so I want us to take a look at a few passages that have been misused to prop up institutions of slavery and oppression and racial superiority and inferiority. The first of those is something that is often referred to as the curse of Ham. We find it in the first book of the Bible, Genesis, in the ninth chapter. And this is a story that takes place shortly after Noah and his family have come out of the ark. And it's a story that is uh, an ideological story. It is one that's meant to explain things that are still to come later in the story. It's a tale of origins. And here's what that story says. You can follow along as I read it. Ham, one of Noah's sons, Canaan's father, saw his father naked and told his two brothers who were outside. Now, the back story on this is that Noah 
essentially has gotten drunk and passed out in his tent. And Ham walks in and sees him and does nothing about it except to tell his brothers about it. And then as the story continues, we hear that Shem and Japheth took a robe, threw it over their shoulders, walked backward so as not to see their naked father, and covered their naked father without looking at him because they turned away. When Noah woke up from his wine, he discovered what his youngest son, Ham, had done to him. And he said, cursed be Canaan, the lowest servant he will be for his brothers. Now this story is meant to anticipate a judgment on the Canaanites that comes later in the story of Scripture. And a couple of things to notice about the story in order to set the record straight. One, notice that the story that is referred to as the curse of Ham is not a curse that is actually pronounced on Ham, but one that is pronounced on Canaan, one of Ham's four sons. The second is that the curse that is pronounced comes not from the mouth of God, but from the mouth of Noah, who has just been drunk and passed out in his tent. And yet, this story became the justification that helped prop up the institution of slavery in this country and in other places in the 18th and 19th centuries. And it continued to be used to prop up a racial differentiation long after that. The Schofield Reference Bible, which came out in 1909, included this statement in reference to this story. And by the way, this Bible is still in publication today and is still used in certain circles today with this same footnote still present. A prophetic declaration is made that from Ham will descend an inferior and servile posterity. The other passages we need to take a look at are what are known as the household codes. These are those passages that we find in the letter to the Ephesians and the letter to the Colossians that were meant to help give guidance to relationships within households as they were con constructed in that time. So that would have included relationships between masters and slaves, between husbands and wives, and between parents and children. Now the great irony here is this. While Paul doesn't go as far as we may like for him to in addressing these relationships, he actually was pushing the envelope and trying to create greater um, Christ-likeness, greater, a greater sense of care for all persons who are a part of the household by, by establishing some ethical standards that hadn't always existed in the past. And so, in talking to masters and husbands and parents, the people in the household relationships who had the power, he sets new expectations for them. He tells masters not to treat their slaves too harshly, 
but to be careful with them. He, t- he tells husbands to love their wives, and he tells parents to not be too harsh with their children. But ironically, when it comes to the master and slave relationship and the husband and wife relationship, these codes have far too often been used to revert back to an old way and to continue to suppress and oppress both women and persons of color. In the mid-19th century, sadly, some of the most vocal people in using these codes to justify slavery were preachers. Here is an excerpt from A Scriptural View of Slavery by Reverend Thornton Stringfellow in 1856. May it not be said in truth that God decreed this institution of slavery before it existed? And has he not connected its existence with prophetic tokens of special favor to those who should be slave owners or masters? He is the same God now that he was when he gave these views of his moral character to the world. Notice how he deems slavery as an example of the moral character that God calls for in the world. And then this in an address to Christians throughout the world that was uh, put out by a convention of ministers who gathered in Richmond, Virginia in 1863. We testify in the sight of God that the relations of master and slave among us is not incompatible with our holy Christianity. The practicable plan for benefiting the African race must be the providential plan, the scriptural plan, which, according to them, was the one that called for maintaining a differentiation and perpetuating the practice of slavery. There is a long and painful history of abusive interpretations of Scripture that have had devastating consequences in this regard. And not only here in the United States or in the Americas or in Europe, but we can look as recently as what happened in Rwanda. Because the tension, the hatred that built up between the Tutsis and the Hutus, the seedbed of that was the Europeans who occupied and dominated Rwanda for many, many years, for generations. And when they did, they created a distinction, a separation between the Tutsis and the Hutus based on height, tone of skin color, and breadth of their noses and created a hierarchy because the Tutsis looked more like them than the Hutus did, and therefore they were considered superior and again used a scriptural argument for their purposes. Thankfully, things have changed, at least to some extent. We do not read and interpret these scriptures the same way anymore. And it's important that as we name that, we also recognize something that 
is helpful for us not only in thinking about how we come to Scripture related to this topic, but other topics as well, including the one that Catherine preached on last week and a host of other things that we might look to Scripture for guidance on. Consider what Peter Gomes, chaplain, former chaplain of Harvard University and theologian, has to say. The texts have not changed. The household codes in the New Testament, the Genesis passage about what happened with the sons of Noah, they say exactly the same thing today as we read them, as they said when others read them in generations and centuries before us. The texts have not changed, but we have and the world with us. Scripture, like Jesus Christ himself, may be the same to yesterday, today, and forever, but our capacity to read Scripture and to appropriate Jesus Christ and his teachings is not. We can learn. We can gain new perspective, new insight through the gifting of the Holy Spirit and so it's important that we not listen to isolated passages without putting them in the context of the larger message of Scripture and what the whole Word of God, both contained in the Bible and especially in the person of Jesus Christ and through the gifting of the Holy Spirit, has to say. So when we take that big view, what can we say about what the Bible has to say about racism? The first thing we can say is all means all. Every one of us was created in the divine image of God and there is no room for hierarchies whether it has to do with race, class, gender, creed. We are all God's children fearfully and wonderfully made. Acts 10 verse 34 a verse that falls on the heels of the story that Catherine reminded us of last week, where Peter has that vision of what supposedly were clean and unclean animals, and then has the encounter with Cornelius. Acts 10.34 says this, Peter said, I really am learning that God doesn't show partiality to one group of people over another. So I want to share with you a fantastic example of reading the same scripture, a text that has not changed, but one person's experience of having their eyes opened to see it differently. Floyd Bryant, in 1956, shared his testimony in a Southern Baptist publication about this, about reading this particular scripture. And here's what he says. Throughout the first 60 years of my life, I never questioned, listen to this, but that Peter's confession that God is no respecter of persons referred exclusively to the differences among white Christian persons. Never questioned it. Neither did I question that segregation was Christian and that it referred to the separation of white and Negro people. I exchanged, and this next word should be former, I exchanged the former views 
which I had absorbed from my environment for the latter views which I learned from the New Testament. Other scriptures on this idea of all means all and God's radically inclusive and equalizing love. James 2.9, but when you show favoritism, you are committing a sin. And then Galatians 3.28, one that many of us have probably memorized at some point along the way, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And then there is the witness of the whole gospel of Luke, written particularly with the Gentiles in mind, a people that had been previously excluded, to say yes to all of God's people. I imagine, and Esau Macaulay talks about this, that the witness of that gospel and all of Scripture saying all means all helped, helped grant courage to Richard Allen and to Absalom Jones when they decided that enough had been enough and that black people didn't need to feel inferior in churches, especially in churches, And so one Sunday morning when they had had enough in a Methodist church, sadly, in Philadelphia, Richard Allen and others got up and walked out and said, we will form our own church where we are full participants in the good news of the gospel. And they formed the African Methodist Episcopal denomination. All means all. Second thing we can deduce from Scripture is that God shows up for the oppressed. Now, not every act of oppression is about or is grounded in racism. But every instance of racism is a form of oppression. And so it is fitting for us to look at passages that deal with oppression when we're thinking about what the Bible has to say to us about racism. Perhaps the most familiar of these is the song that Mary sang right after she found out from the angel that she was going to give birth to the Son of God. She breaks out. She cannot contain her joy in the Magnificat, and she says this that we read in Luke chapter 1, he has pulled the powerful down from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty-handed. In looking at this particular passage, Esau Macaulay says this, is this not the hope of every black Christian that God might hear and save? That God might look upon those who deny us loans for houses or charge exorbitant interest rates in order to cordon us off into little pockets of poverty and say to them, your oppression has been met with the advent of God. Other scriptures, Psalm 103, 6, the Lord works righteousness, does justice for the oppressed. And Psalm 9, 9, the Lord is a safe place for the oppressed, a safe place in difficult times. Surely this theme that runs through Scripture of God showing up for the oppressed helped undergird the thoughts and the ideas and the writings of Howard Thurman 
especially when he penned the book Jesus and the Disinherited. That's another book I recommend, and it's one that actually is about to be offered starting this coming week in a small group right here with Trinity. And so if you're interested in diving into that one, uh, you can talk to somebody outside today about getting connected to that group. This idea of God showing up for the oppressed is also captured in a quote from Archbishop Desmond Tutu, God is always on the side of the oppressed, not because they are inherently better than the oppressor, but rather simply because they are oppressed. Third thing, critiquing unjust systems and structures is biblically rooted. Now the prophets speak loudly and clearly about injustice, but they aren't the only ones. In fact, this critiquing shows up in some places that we may not necessarily recognize all the time. For example, when he is beginning his letter to the Galatians in the first chapter, Paul talks about how wonderful it is that we, uh, through, through Jesus Christ, are connected with the love of God and set free from our sin. And then also he says, and we are delivered from the present evil age. Now when Paul says the present evil age, he is speaking specifically, without naming it directly, he is speaking specifically to the oppressive regime of the Roman Empire, which was persecuting the early Christian church. The whole book of Revelation is highly symbolic, highly metaphorical, and was meant to offer hope to those who were suffering under the crushing oppression of that empire and to offer a political critique of the Roman Empire. And then there is this. This one really got my attention this week. Who knew that in Romans 13, there is a framework for a theology of good policing. Listen to this. The authorities don't frighten people who are doing the right thing. Rather, they frighten people who are doing wrong. Would you rather not be afraid of authority? Then do what's right and you will receive its approval. It is God's servant given for your benefit. But if you do what's wrong, be afraid because it doesn't have weapons to enforce the law for nothing. It is God's servant put in place to carry out his punishment on those who do what is wrong. What is interesting here is that Paul is calling attention to the way it is supposed to be, not necessarily the way it actually was, because Paul knows that Roman soldiers policing the towns in which early Christians lived did not always act the way authorities were supposed to live. And they did unjustly oppress many innocent people. And so Esau Macaulay draws some uncomfortable parallels for us between what it might have been like for early Christians to live in that setting and to be black in America today. As a much younger man than me living in America, part of what he highlights is the nearly 10 times that he can count when he has already in his lifetime been pulled over simply because of the color 
of his skin. <clears throat> Micah 6, 8. What does the Lord require of us? To do justice. To love mercy. To walk humbly with God. Just as God acts on behalf of the oppressed, so God's people are called to do so as well. And lastly, followers of Jesus are called to the ministry of reconciliation. The ministry of reconciliation is a term that shows up in 2 Corinthians 5, where Paul says, having received the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, now you are ambassadors, now are you are participants in inviting others to be reconciled both to God and also to one another. Man, that is... That is at the heart of the Kairos ministry that we are uh, featuring today as a ministry of Trinity. That ministry of reconciliation both to God and to other human beings. The gospel proclaims a new reality that is captured well in Ephesians 2 verse 14. Christ is our peace. He made both Jews and Gentiles into one group. And I would invite you to think in a 21st century context and substitute whatever groups that may be warring or may be experiencing division, whether in our own land or in other lands, substitute those in there and think about what a powerful thing it is to say that through Christ there is the possibility for peace because with his body, he broke down the barrier of hatred that divided us. I love a phrase that our bishop, Ken Carter, has been using over the last couple of years as throughout the conference, churches have been invited to participate in an anti-racism initiative and do the work of this ministry of reconciliation. Bishop Carter says this, the work of anti-racism is the work of the gospel. It is one of the ways in which we live out the call to be followers of Jesus. So we began today with a vision from Revelation. People from every tribe, every language, every race gathered together. And that vision may feel like it's still a long way off. And it may also feel a little ethereal but it's a good idea for us to keep the end in mind while we live in the present moment. And so I want to offer you another image today that is one that's helpful for me in thinking about how I practically might live toward that vision today. And it's, and it's one that seems fitting for today on World Communion Sunday. And it's the image of tables places where we are welcomed and invited to gather with one another, to laugh, to cry, to celebrate, to listen to one another's stories, to learn, to grow, to share, all kinds of tables, dinner tables, coffee tables, bar tables, kitchen tables, if the vision of Revelation is the end that we have in mind, a question that bubbles up for me is, 
Who do we need to be spending time at tables with in the meantime? I love this particular image created by Jan Richardson, child of Trinity who grew up to be an amazing theologian and artist and poet. And Jan captures one visual of what it looks like for everyone to be gathered and to have a place. And it's an image that helps me remember that all means all. And God invites all of us to the table. And there is work for us to do to make it so. Amen.